Thank you for listening to the first episode of A Football Journey presented by Grand Leyenda Tequila. I am your host, Fidel Barraza, and tonight my guest is a former NFL head coach, Hugh Jackson. Thank you so much for joining me, Coach. How are you doing? Doing great. Appreciate your time, Coach. All right. I want to start off by talking about your early childhood and you being raised in Los Angeles. If you can just walk us through that. You know, Fidel, when I think back to my early childhood, uh, it was rough. I grew up in inner city L.A., uh, 52nd and Hoover, uh, which is right around where the Hoover Crips were. Uh, we lived in a, in a house that was on top of a church, and an auto body shop was right next door. So I always knew when church was going on, Wednesday night Bible class, Sunday evening uh, church was going on. And we did not attend that church. We went to Peter Royal Church of Christ, but that will always be embedded in me. Just because I lived on a in a in a house apartment, whatever you want to call it, that was on top of a church. Um, I lived with you know my brothers and sisters and my aunties and uncles because they had to stay with us because my mom's parents passed, so she brought her sister and her brother in, Shirley and Ray, and it was just it was different. And I just remember when I was younger saying um, I wanted something different, you know, and so. My journey, I, I went to 52nd Street Elementary School, which was right down the street. But from where we were living on Hoover, Figueroa was the next big street over. So you can see the Coliseum from where we were, the Los Angeles Coliseum. And so I always dreamed of being involved there in some capacity, rather as a player. Boy, everybody thought you're going to go play at USC. You're going to be the next Charles White, Marcus Allen, Vince Evans you know, or, you know, somehow, some way, get a job working in that particular environment, which I did, which was CSC security. So I went to Dorsey High School. We were the uh, ninth class of 83 city champions, uh, the first city championship there. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And so I played quarterback. Um, it was a great time growing up, but it was also tough too. How did that passion for football start with you? Like what made you want to start playing football? You know, I think the the ability to let out some aggression. I mean, when you grow up in inner city LA, you see violence. Let's just be very mm -hmm. honest. I mean, those are the things you see. And you can't do those things because obviously it leads to you possibly being incarcerated. So you had to find other ways to let that energy flow. And I thought football was best because it was a contact sport, you know, as opposed to basketball. And I did play basketball, but football became my all-consuming passion. When I was young, and obviously it's been my all-consuming passion since I've been older. Yeah, so you played quarterback in college as well. So how was that transition for you uh, from being a quarterback to actually start coaching? It was. It was um, at first it was difficult because I started really coaching at the University of Pacific, and my first year in coaching, well, I was really with Bob Cope. My first year was the guy who I played for. And then he left and Walt Harris came in and brought John Gruden, Charles Davis. We had an unbelievable staff. And my hunger for coaching really started with John Gruden because what happened was I was a wishbone quarterback. So playing in a wishbone, you don't learn all the drop backs and run game and all the things, line blocking. That's not what's important. It's ride and decide and read a key and make a decision. And I never forget, he told me one day, if you stay here talking about John, 
He said, if you stay here and grind with me every night, I'll teach you everything I know. And he did. He put me on the board and every night we would go through it. And then my thirst and my hunger for understanding more, wanting to know more started to really grow. If I remember correctly, I think I heard you say um, when you were younger, you wanted to be an FBI agent. If you can just uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Did. And because there was a gentleman, you know, when you play quarterback at a major college, you know, people kind of, you know, you get a little entitled on some things. And so a guy was going to kind of pave the way for me to go into that field and really kind of jumpstart myself to becoming an FBI agent. I got very excited about it. So I thought, man, why not? And I told Coach Cope that I was thinking about doing that. He goes, I don't think that's right for you. He goes, I think you should be involved in coaching. I think you're a leader of men. And that always stuck with me. That's great. How was your transition from coaching in college into the NFL? Tell us a little bit about that. So when you coach in college, obviously the major thing you do is recruiting. You know, I, I was very um, good as a recruiter. I'll pat myself on the back. I recruited two Heisman Trophy winners to USC. And, um, you know, so it's about the players that you can put in your program. So when you, you know, when you're in the national, when you're in college, it's really about recruiting. Um, and it's really about um, learning how to coach, to be very honest with you. I don't think anybody's really polished yet. I think you're learning what to do and what not to do. And the National Football League, it's the best of the best. You're competing against the best coaches every day. It's football 24-7. Uh, it's really about strategy. Um, you know, obviously, you work through those things. Um, the details of coaching is on a totally different level. You're not worried about, like I said, recruiting and those things. So it was different to go from college. My last college job was USC as a coordinator to going into the National Football League, working for Marty Schottenheimer and coaching Stephen Davis, you know, who was one of the best backs in the league at the time. I had to bring my A game and I was fortunate enough that, that he really respected me and he had a great year. How, how was it the first year that you coached in the NFL? Talk about, you, you know, your experiences, how you felt kind of just walking into an uh, NFL building for the first time. Right, Fidel, it was, it was amazing for me. You know, when you, you just said it, you walk into this National Football League building, you're a pro, you know? You, you made it. You're, you're in the pros now. You're the best, seen as one of the best in the league at what you do on the 32 teams. You're one of the best running back coaches in the league. And so I, I took a lot of pride in that. I wanted to be that, you know, not just a guy who was there. And working, when you work for Marty Schottenheimer, we were going to run the football, you know? So that was another piece of it for me. And so I was so excited to be there with him, uh, to be in Washington. I was away from home. I was learning all sorts of new things. I'd never seen snow before. I mean, it was just different all the way around. But boy, what a great experience and what great life lessons learned. Why do you think that Marty Schottenheimer is not in the Hall of Fame? I don't know. And that's, that's disappointing. He should be. Uh, you just said it. He's one of the best uh, to ever coach the game. Obviously, his wins say that. I don't care what no one says. Yeah. Hopefully, they'll do the right thing in the future and, and make sure that Marty gets inducted. Let's talk about your first head coaching job in the NFL with the Raiders. What did that mean to you? What was the experience like in Oakland? Adele, it was amazing. It was one of the greatest times of my life. Uh, to be named uh, the head coach of the Oakland Raiders, Al Davis's coach and his last coach. I took a lot of pride in that. I wanted to restore uh, the, uh, obviously, the excellence of the Raiders. 
Uh, I came there in 2010 as a coordinator. Uh, they were 31st in offense. We went from 31st to 6th. I then was named head coach and was very excited for the opportunity. And we thought we had a really good team going. And, and obviously, we got some injuries. But more so than that, we lost out. You know, we lost who was the obviously the leader of the organization. Uh, he's an iconic figure. We all know that. But I took a lot of pride working for him. I took a lot of pride being a Raider. I loved being in, in I lived in Alameda right in the heart of everything. And, and because it was just so important for people to be able to see the head coach was just like an everyday guy, just like them. And so I took a lot of pride in that. And uh, we had a lot of fun. We won some games, some games we didn't win. We should have won. But boy, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, you guys went through a lot that season too when Jason Campbell got hurt and the whole uh, Carson Palmer trade happened. Um, tell us about the transition or what 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 was the situation when Jason went down and you said, all right, we can win, but we just need a quarterback. Can you do, if you can just uh, go into detail on that situation? Yeah, I think the thing that was really hard, it wasn't just that Jason went down, so did Darren McFadden, yeah. who was having an unbelievable year. Darren was averaging 6.1 yards, 6 yards a carry. Jason was playing some tremendous football. And at the time, we were four and two, you know, and we were feeling good. We had lost Al, got through that, come home playing Cleveland. And then all of a sudden, Jason gets hurt. And me and Mark's conversation was, we have a really good football team. How do we keep this team moving forward? Because we thought we had a chance. We thought we were good enough uh, offensively, defensively, and special team-wise. And we wanted to try to seize the opportunity. And so um, obviously there was a few quarterbacks out there, but the guy who was sitting at home was Carson Palmer. And uh, I didn't want to get, you know, really roped into that because I thought people would think it'd be me making the decision. Yeah. And people, that's what people thought. And so when he came in, I let them go to the workout. I didn't even walk out there first. And I think obviously he worked out. Carson's going to work out extremely well. He's one yeah. of the most pure passers I've ever seen. And Mark made a decision to, to bring him on. And to this day, people thought it was my decision. Mark made that decision. And he's come out and said that. And he said, I don't know why everybody's mad at Hugh. Hugh didn't make the decision. I did. And so, uh, obviously, we fell short. We had a chance to make the playoffs the last game of the year against San Diego. Didn't make, a, didn't make it. Uh, we never made a punt. We scored 26 points on offense. Just couldn't make it happen. And those things happened. We would have been hosting a playoff game. And then the rest was history. You know, they moved on from me and, and the, the Raiders are where they are today. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about your stint with the Cincinnati Bengals. Obviously, you have close relationships with, with Chad Ochocinco, uh, Marvin Lewis. If you can just tell us a little bit about your time in Cincinnati. Uh, Fidel, that organization has been like my lifeline. You know, um, they allowed me to come there in first and coach Chad and TJ and Chris Henry and Kelly Washington and a host of other great players. That was fun. They gave me a chance to leave and pursue my goals, which was becoming a coordinator. Went to Atlanta um, from Atlanta, you know, went over to Baltimore, from Baltimore over to Oakland. And when things happened, when Al passed, they brought me back and gave me a job on defense. I coached on defense with Mike Zimmer and uh, special teams and was very excited about that. And then after the first year, they moved me back to the offense. I was the running back coach and then became the coordinator. And my last stint there in that situation, I was the 2015 Offensive Coach of the Year. And so I go to Cleveland, that didn't work, and they bring me back. So that tells you that there's a lot of respect there on both sides. I really respect the organization. I expect the, I really respect the leadership. I think they're great people. And obviously, I hope they can get that organization turned around. 
the next subject that I want to talk about, something that's obviously it's brought a lot of attention, the lack of minority coaches in the NFL. There's not too many. Why do you think that is, Coach? But now when I think back to the history of the league, um, minorities were not involved at the start of the league. You know, you have to really go back 1920. And then the first minority player, uh, Kenny Washington, they had to file an injunction in order to get him to play. And so what I'm saying, and people have to understand, minorities were not seen as part of the league. You weren't going to play, and you doggone sure weren't going to coach. So when the first player happened, I think people start saying, wow, these guys can bring some value, talking about minorities. And you look up, and there got to be more players. But then it took a while for the first head coach to have an opportunity. And so, I mean, I think it was Art Shell way back in, you know, whenever that was. But it's only been 19 over the 100-year history. We've been going to 101 years. So that's got to tell you something, that something's not right. The biggest thing is when we say 19, really only five of them have been offensive guys, maybe six, six now are offensive guys. So that's concerning, okay? And so when you look at this, you say, how do you fix this? And people say, well, you know, you got to get to the owners. You got to do this. You got to do that. But Dale, I spoke to the Diversity and Inclusion Committee and told them very seriously, we mandated taking the head out of the game for CTE, for concussions issues. The National Football League has always been on the cutting edge when it comes to trying to do things better, trying to find better ways. Players had to change, coaches had to change, everybody had to change, it was mandated. And we saw that it was good for the league. We saw it was good for the players, it was good for everybody involved. So. If they're saying that diversity and inclusion is so important to the National Football League and it should be one of the lifelines, one of the pillars, I should say, of the National Football League, then why wouldn't you mandate it? And they said to me, well, you can't tell the owners what to do. Well, no doubt you can't tell the owners what to do, but you told them what to do in the concussion situation. So why can't you tell them in this situation? So if there's four jobs, give two to minorities, give two to Caucasian coaches, and let the data tell us what's happening after five years, and there'll be some Minority coaches that fall out, there'll be some minority coaches that do well, but the bottom line, it will be seen, it will come across that everybody is being fair. That's how, and, that, and that's the most important part of this, is making it fair. And so when I said all that, and I'm being very honest with you, I seen some heads just go down. I didn't see anybody jump, run, say, Hugh, wow, what a great thought. I, I saw people's head go down. And so... It just doesn't make any sense to me that if you want to be do things right, you got to be very intentional. You got to be very transparent in order to make it happen. And that's what the league has to do. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, there's a lot of coaches out there that, I mean, that they didn't even get ahead of coaching interviews uh, like mm -hmm. yourself. Um, you know, Byron Leftwich, the offensive coordinator for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, he did an outstanding job. I know Eric Bieniemy did get an interview with the Texans, I believe. Uh, but mm -hmm. for whatever reason, they just went the other way. So to me, I mean, it's a big issue that has not been addressed. If anything, it's, you know, it's gotten worse over time. It hasn't gotten better. I mean, Fidel, it's not even, it's not, you said it, it's not even gotten better. I get disappointed when I hear people say, well, you got a few more coordinators now, you got a few more GMs now. So is that what you're trying to tell us you're going to give us? You know, is that supposed to be what we're okay with? Because now there's four GMs and there's now four coordinators. I mean, are you kidding me? There's 32 teams, okay? 
And to me, until, like I say, until people are intentional about changing it, I don't see it changing because I've been in this long enough to hear these same conversations. I was just fortunate enough and had the opportunities that I did in two places in Oakland and Cleveland. And, and, and I'm thankful for it. But at the same time, uh, I'm really uh, afraid of what the future looks like for minority coaches. Um, let's talk about the Hugh Jackson Foundation. Let's, uh, if you can tell the audience a little bit what that is. So the Hugh Jackson Foundation is at HughJackson.org. It's about trying to end human trafficking. We're trying to do everything we can to give people information, first and foremost, about what are the signs of human trafficking, and then trying to do everything we can to combat it. We have a residence that's in Cleveland. We partner with the Salvation Army at the Harbor Light District, where we house human trafficking victims. Um, we're trying to make an impact. It is a huge issue in our world and people need to really understand what's happening. It is a billion dollar business for traffickers and they're stealing our kids. They're stealing our adult people. I mean, it is an issue and it has no ethnic, it, I mean, it's, it's everywhere and people just need to understand exactly what the signs look like. How can someone get involved in kind of helping out with the foundation? I think if they go to HughJackson.org, there's all kinds of opportunities there uh, to be involved in a lot of different ways. And if they want to be in part, you know, obviously donating so that we can keep the residents going is important, but also being a part of getting the message out yeah. is so important. The other part is making sure that we give support and resources to these victims that deal with this. And it's again, it's there's so many ways to help. Kimberly Demerit, she does a great job for me. She's my executive director. She will you know, make sure that she makes sure that people are headed in the right direction to help uh, this problem. Let's talk about Grand Leyenda Tequila. Let's talk about how you got involved. And uh, I mean, it's some really great tequila. You can just talk about that. <laughs> Thank you, Fidel. I, um, I, I'm in love with our brand. Uh, I got involved through a, a mutual high school friend who knew Daryl uh, Spann, who's the CEO and president. Uh, we met and Daryl is a, at the time was the only black tequila owner in the world. Now we got several guys popping up all over the place. Everybody wants tequila now. And so um, we kind of met, uh, first it was about the people, it was about him, the person. I really had a lot of respect for him and what he was doing and how he was trying to scale the business. And then when I tasted the brand, I just fell in love. I mean, I, I mean you, you've tasted it. It's so smooth. It's organic. Don't panic. It's organic. It's organic. And we love it. And, and, and it's pure organic. There's some people say they might have organic tequila, but they add stuff to their tequila. We yeah. don't. I went to Jalisco, spent time there, see how we make the bottles. It's handcrafted. See where our agave is. I chopped some agave. I did it all. It was amazing. And I seen our process and how we make these bottles and how we put the juice in the bottles. And I fell in love. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Everyone keeps asking me, where can I order a bottle? Because, you know, it's, ha it's happening this upcoming week because we are now going to be online in 38 states. That's great. That's exciting. Yes. yes. And to anyone out there that hasn't tried it, you guys can actually go to the website and it actually tells you where you can order it online as of mm -hmm. the moment, but thank you for that information, coach. All right. W what's next for you, coach? You know, uh, Fidel, I really want to get back to coaching. I've been working at the House of Athletes training 
uh, potential NFL draftees. It's been a lot of fun. I miss being on the grass. I miss leading men. Um, but I know it's got to be in the right situation. The thing that's dif difficult for me is when I watch so many of my uh, Caucasian brothers who were head coaches who immediately get jobs. You know, I mean, they're back to being coordinators. They're back to being consultants or special assistants for the particular teams. And, and minority coaches have to sit on sideline and just wait for whatever to happen in order to get a chance. So that is disappointing. I want to coach. No one can tell me that out of 32 teams that I'm not one of the better coordinators in that league. Yeah. You know, I just know better. I didn't win coach of the year by doing nothing, you know. So it is what it is, but you just need one opportunity. I want to do it. But at the same time, I got a book that's going to come out this year um, that's going to really talk about, you know, my life, my process, and me as a coach and my time and in several different places. And, and I'm really excited about that because I think the story needs to be told. I think it's going to help minority coaches. I think it's going to really get a message out uh, so people can see how the National Football League and how a bunch of other things work because I think it's important to know. Yeah, I look forward to, uh, to be able to read the book. Uh, before I let you go, obviously there's been a lot of quarterback trades this offseason, kind of more than what we've seen in previous years. Start off with uh, Matthew Stafford being shipped to Los Angeles. And recently, a couple of days ago, Carson Wentz going to the Indianapolis Colts. What do you feel about those trades? Um, who do you think won the trade? <laughs> it's really amazing. When I think about um, Detroit, what they were able to get from the Rams, including Jared Goff, a guy who was the, the second pick of the first pick of the draft, excuse me, first pick of the draft, who has been to the Super Bowl, you know, uh, probably hadn't won as much as maybe the Rams wanted him to, but the guys won. You know, so they get a quarterback who can play. They got to kind of work the system around him to give him a chance. But everything they added on top of getting golf makes me feel like they won the opportunity to, to say they won that particular. Yeah. So obviously the Rams have to make this thing work with Stafford. You know, uh, I think he's a good player. He's getting older. He has a big time arm. But boy, what does that look like? And can he play? 16 games to earn a 17th for the Rams. I think that's yet to be known. Yeah, it's going to be tough. What about Carson Wentz? I mean, we kind of, before the season ended, we had talked about possibly, you know, Wentz being gone or either mm -hmm. it was going to be Doug Peterson that was going to be gone. Well, now they're both gone. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, Carson Wentz is with the Indianapolis and Doug Peterson, I think, is without a job. Right, Fidel, you're right. I mean, I, I, I was shocked that um, they gave up uh, very little to, to let him go. I mean, to, they got very little, I should say, to let him go. Uh, here's a guy who at one time was trending to be the MVP in the league, you know, in 2017. He gets hurt. Uh, they make some decisions on their offensive football team, and then all of a sudden, you know, falls apart. It just goes to show you how important it is to support your quarterback in every way, especially when you're paying him, you know. And they paid him for a reason. They paid him because they believe he was going to be. But when I think back through them, when – you have a statue at your stadium of the backup quarterback. Yeah. When you draft another quarterback very high, you're saying to your quarterback that maybe we don't believe in you. You know, I think Carson Wentz, you know, I worked him out. I really liked him. I think he still has a bright future ahead of himself. I think he's got to get out of his own head. I think that's what Coach Wright would do because I think that's where he really took hold when Coach Wright had him. And I think he'll get back to playing great football. I mean, he has that makeup. He's very intelligent. He's tough. He, he can make big plays. He can throw it. 
you know, his probably athleticism has changed a little bit. But uh, again, I think Indy got a steal, you know, and I think they're going to going to be a team that's going to be reckoned with this year. One of the quarterbacks that hasn't been traded yet, Deshaun Watson, you know, one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. Obviously, he's made it clear he does not want to be in Houston, but for whatever reason, the Texans are just kind of holding, I don't want to say hostage, but maybe waiting for the right price. Uh, let me get your thoughts on that. You know, I, I'm to the, you know, now that I've seen some of these quarterbacks leave, all the quarterbacks who potentially could be other places, if I'm Houston, having brought in a new staff, and I have a quarterback who doesn't want to be there, I just let J.J. Watt go. I'm going to do the right thing by the player and the organization. I'm going to get as much as I can. I do not want a player in our organization that don't want to be there. You're just too hard to overcome because something's going to come up to where it doesn't work right. And if you don't have everybody on board, your whole locker room can just, just fall flat very quickly. So I think the team should do the right thing by finding the right partner to get as much as they can. And they need to move on from him as much as he wants to move on from them. Thank you so much, Coach, for joining me on the first episode of A Football Journey. I really do appreciate it. Well, thank you. You're awesome. I appreciate what you do. The East-West Podcast is amazing, and what you're doing now is going to be even better because I think people do have a journey. They have a story to tell, and I think some people get very excited about telling their story because it makes them go back and relive some good times, some tough times, and it makes them really think about what they're going to do in the future. Well, I appreciate it, Coach. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.